to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. In the aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, bit of political divisiveness, anger, and irrational thinking continue to trouble the United States and inhibit the possibility of logical debate. In his new book, American Schism, Seth David Radwell looks into the historical underpinnings of the this uh, contentious state of politics in our splintered American society. It's published by Greenleaf and brings Seth David Radwell to our show now. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Leonard, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You're a business executive. What got yes. you thinking about the things that you discuss in this book? Because it's not a well, business fact- book. Yes, it's actually very interesting. I, my whole career has been in business. I've been a consumer marketer and I've run and led many consumer brands. I took a three-year hiatus from my business uh, pursuits because I was increasingly concerned that our entire political discourse in this country had collapsed. And I was determined to do some research to get to the bottom of why, in fact, the divide seems so bitter today. And so it really was a, a conscious effort that that made me kind of redirect my energy towards this. And then the pandemic hit. Yes, which is also probably a help because I had done tons of research prior to the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, I was really able to lock down and do some fascinating reading, research and writing. And, you know, I, I was had been concerned not only that our discourse had been acrimonious and it seemed like rancor had crowded out any kind of rational debate. But I also noticed, Leonard, that over the last couple of years, the pursuit of objective truth has seemingly disappeared. In other words, Americans are so confused and they no longer feel like they can actually ascertain the truth. And my sense is that if that's the case, our democracy is doomed. And so it made me more motivated during these pandemic times to focus on writing American schism. And it's gotten quite a good reception. And you say that you asked yourself how and when your idea of America disappeared and whether your vision of America ever really existed at all. Precisely. I mean, I, I, I've always considered myself in many ways a product of the American dream. I came from very modest backgrounds. And, I, you know, I have two Ivy League degrees. I built a great career. I've been very successful. And I'm very fortunate. And over the last couple of years, I started to realize that, you know, the illusion about that I held about the American dream was 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 I was becoming disillusioned that, in fact, for many, it's been a myth. And the America that I thought was so positive has a much darker side. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the goal of the book was to do an investigative tracing of our divisions hmm. to understand where they come from. I was convinced that not only are we caught in a partisan bubble, but we're, we're also caught in a time bubble, thinking that our time is so unique. And that's why I wanted to go back to history to really understand how we got here. And, and central to your arguments uh, uh that the roots of our splintered American society uh, exist are the the two enlightenments of the 18th century, the radical and the moderate. I was only taught in school that there was one enlightenment. (laughs) So was I. So was I, Leonard, which is why this is so um, interesting. You know, I thought I was a great student of the enlightenment. And over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of reading and research. And one particular uh, scholar, an academic named Jonathan Israel, has a framework. Who wrote the foreword to your book? 
Yes, yes. He has a framework of what he calls the two enlightenments. And I, as I was doing this research, even way before, this was way before COVID hit, I was convinced that what he was writing about was applicable to what was happening in America. And so the two enlightenments, what it means is, is that, in fact, the enlightenment was, of course, the backdrop for how our country was formed. Well, it, it was a European it was a European thing where were these two uh, aspects of it of, in the European enlightenment as well. Well, yes, yes, it started in Europe, but it came to America in that there were two very contentious ideas for what America could be that were vying that were competing with each other, vying for prominence. And one was kind of the what I described as the radical enlightenment notion of people like Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin. And they had one vision of what America could be, but it was very contentious with another vision put forth by John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and others, ultimately Washington, who were part of what what we call the moderate enlightenment. And it, it, the difference is that argument, that debate, which eventually played out between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, the two first political parties, actually contain many of the antecedents of the divisions we see today. Because there were no political parties until actually uh, our third president. Isn't that true? Well, correct. Washington no- and Adams, were there were no parties. They weren't. Uh, uh, they were elected under other circumstances. Correct. But here's what happened. The period that I chronicle in American Schism in the first part of the book is precisely the period in between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And that's when these two different schools were feuding and battling. And, and, and it's, it's very clear that that's what led to the two political parties, the Federalists of Hamilton and Jefferson's uh, Democratic Republicans. And if I could just for a second, I mean, the book goes into this in great detail, but to summarize... You could go into some detail. We were interested. Oh, okay, great. So, so Leonard, I mean, you know, the, the, of course, the Enlightenment was such an important... I think we lose sight of how uh, important the Enlightenment was for creating what is today a modern society. And in the, the word Enlightenment itself has fallen out of fashion. In recent years, the postmodern movement has classified it as, you know, a bunch of white men from Europe uh, telling us how the world works. And, you know, I contend that that's a mischaracterization because the Enlightenment is so crucial um, for the creation of a modern society. I mean, if you look across the last 200 years, and Steven Pinker's written a lot about this, you know, the life life expectancy 200 years ago was 31 years. Mm. And now it's seven over 70 years all over the globe. Similarly, 200 years ago, one in five children did not survive till age five. Well, whereas today almost all do. My point being from, from the from the fact-based view of human prosperity, the Enlightenment has created more advancement, more human prosperity in the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. And uh, that's why it's so important. Now, when, when we talk about political philosophy, the framework in the Enlightenment that came uh, that came up was the social contract. And that's where there, were, there was a lot of di- disagreement. There were these two schools, the radical and moderate school. So let me but, just, excuse me. Different understandings about who governs and what role government should play 
in dealing with society's problems? Is that what you're saying? Exactly, Leonard. You're, that's exactly right. The whole the whole construct of the social contract was, you know, whereas for centuries government was was basically ordained by God and given to kings, the, the absolute right of kings. The whole social contract was was how do we enter into a civilized society and why, and what are the rules that we need to abide by, and what rights need to be protected, etc. And here, you know, the classic social contract thinkers like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, these were the moderate enlighteners. And I, they called moderate because their essential construct was to put balances of power, controls on the monarchy, so that the social contract could guarantee certain inalienable rights. For Locke, they were life, liberty, and property. And in this model that you know Montesquieu originally developed this balance of powers to check the executive, it was very uh, much about keeping elites ruling, whether it was the, the king in that case and the aristocrats, but, and, and not really delegating much power to the broad set of people. But the concept was it was what was called often an aristocratic republic, meaning the people who should govern in that model were the elites themselves because they they were educated and they could advocate for the public good. So this would be a variant of what we inherited from Britain with a king. Absolutely. It was the, the, in fact, interestingly, as I point out in American Schism, when John Adams is doing all that writing about the Constitution in the 17, early 1780s and before, he's referring to that. Our Constitution, of course, didn't exist then. He's referring to the British Constitution, which was his model of a mixed government model to, to control the power of the king. Now, What's so important about this this schism that developed during this early part of our history? Well, the radicals, and a lot of this came out of the influence from the French radicals, from the Les Philosophes in France, they believed that the only legitimate form of government ultimately in a republic was a representative government of the people, a democratic form of government where everyone had a voice. That was very different from the moderates who eschewed democracy. For them, at that time, democracy was associated with demagogues. And because many people were not educated, they were very fearful of the mob, quote unquote. But yet the radicals believed that it was possible to educate the populace, to advocate for their own interests. So so one key difference between the radicals and the moderates was this notion of a representative democratic structure of the people. And the second important difference, I mean, there were many, but these are the two I emphasize for your listeners, uh, in, and I hope they get the book to learn more. But the second key difference related to religion. The radicals, especially again in France, had documented that for centuries there was a collusion between the Catholic Church and the monarchy together to work together to oppress the people. And so it was the radicals who came up with this notion of the civic arena needing to be separate from the faith-based arena, what today we call the separation of church and state. And that's really important because uh, that concept came from the radicals, and it was not really adopt- it was not really cherished by the moderates. In fact, in Europe, in the in the European schism, 
famously, Voltaire had a great line, which was which goes like this: "Si Dieu n'existait pas, il faudrait l'inventer," which means that if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. Mm-hmm. And what he was implying was that we need God to keep people in line. That religion was an important organizing mechanism, in fact, of this the social contract. So again, that was the, whereas, of course, in contrast to Voltaire, Jefferson wrote that we not only had the right of freedom of religion in this, this new country, but we had a freedom from religion as well. So that, again, was the radicals pushing this idea of a separation of church and state. So how is that reflected in today's politics? Oh, well, it's, it's reflected in so, so many ways. First of all, on one hand, and, and the book describes this, you have this pendulum-like oscillation in our country between this moderate versus radical view of the Enlightenment. So is our, is our country one where it's truly d- democratically represented with a voice for all? Or is it, are we closer to an elite aristocracy, in this case, not a landed aristocracy, but a country where the establishment, where the elite rule? And we have, have, have cycled back and forth between those two poles uh, frequently. And the book, in fact, chronicles five eras of our history using this framework of the moderate and the radical enlightenment. But, but Leonard, what gets a little bit more complex in the, in, this, in, in the history of the United States that leads us to today is that a third force entered shortly after the country was formed, which is, was called the counter-enlightenment, hmm. which is a, a, a force where as faith-based ideas, ideologies, movements end up pushing back against any form of radical or moderate enlightenment. And so this faith-based mechanism, this faith-based impulse, if you will, is also very important and has clouded the picture so that it's not always clear how the radical and moderate actually interact. And so that's where we are today. Today we have, just to to bring it forward, we have a very representative democratic view, an egalitarian view of our country, where everyone should have a, vo- have a voice. But we also have a very strong establishment of elites who are, who are ruling the country. And, at the, and we also have this force of counter-enlightenment, you know, rejection of science, as we see, for example, in the reaction to COVID, where facts and science and the enlightenment itself, the enlightenment framework seems to be cast aside for uh, some other way of, of decision-making. So they all play today, and the book goes through it in quite, quite detail, which I think will, it, readers will find interesting because it very much speaks to some of our pains today. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Seth David Radwell, who's written a book called American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. We'll get to the healing later. Uh, right now we're talking about the, the, the divisive nature of them, uh, published by Greenleaf. Um, well, how it seems to me what you're describing would suggest that uh, that Trumpism is a mix of all three, both kinds of enlightenments and the counter-enlightenment. Is that not true? Yes, there are there are elements of all three in in, in what we call Trumpism. I think what 
What's, what happened in our country's history, by the way, one side note I point out is that it, for me, always the, hit, using history, if we view our current problems against the context, the backdrop of history, we can come to much different understanding than if we're living in a time bubble. So to your point, Trumpism is a function of many of the of those different forces that emerged during our founding period and after. But what Trumpism is also a key part of is what what emerged with Andrew Jackson's presidency, a form of populism, a form of using uh, egalitarian arguments for political advantages, which can often turn and has often turned into to some degree, political manipulation. I mean, it's the tools that demagogues use. So the book kind of tries to pick apart what, in fact, were all the elements that made Trumpism so successful. And what it shows is that the rage that has been brewing in America amongst white working class Americans has been developing for decades. It's not new. It's It's gone all through uh, the modern presidency since since um, uh, Reagan and on and even before. And it relates to the fact that the, estab- the political establishment for, to a large degree has left many, many groups of Americans behind. And they increasingly felt left out that ne- neither Democrats nor Republicans were in fact advocating for their real interests. And they increasingly dropped out of the political conversation. And Trump spoke to those people and brought them back in. And what and are I their interests? De- what well, are their interests that were being ignored? That their interest in a nutshell was that the, our, our current globalist model, which is sometimes called neoliberalism, of an open economy that's competing globally, has in fact left many uh, edu- uneducated or, or co- not college educated Americans without the skills to compete today. And they've, they've increasingly lost purchasing power relative to other groups. So while as overall the economy might be growing, there is tremendous pain in r- especially rural America where purchasing power has actually gone down. And in fact, the whole, this has been cycle after cycle. I mean, we remember from the 80s when manufacturing towns started dying. That was the first wave. But now the children of those Americans who lost their manufacturing jobs in the 80s are now in places that are losing their entire economy, where the economy is depressed, where the civic fabric is also broken down. And I describe this in some detail in the book. My point being is that that's what's created this tremendous unease and and. You know, Trump's success was very much figuring out the political buttons to push to engage those Americans based on emotional uh, uh, levers as opposed to rational argument. But so, don't, so this book, go ahead. Don't those people support politicians who are opposed to raising the minimum wage? Isn't uh, wouldn't? So you see, yeah, Leonard, you're caught in the same trap many are. So here's what happened. Starting with Lee Atwater during the Reagan years, it was it was discussed and market researchers. And I know a lot about this because I've spent my life in marketing. Market researchers figured out that emotional issues motivated voters much more than what kitchen table economic issues. So the old notion of the, like the, the, that the, the working class, the union 
the union class was going to be for uh, based on economic arguments was going to be democratic in our in recent decades and and be against the the republican uh conservative let's call them you know more more uh educated elites that whole model's broken down the the kitchen table issues don't ne- matter nearly as much as pushing buttons that invoke uh anger and fear and the way I describe this in the book, Leonard, is that, you know, we all have these primitive emotions like uh, amygdala-driven emotions that get, that get triggered because it, it's in that part of our history as humans. It's, it was it served us very well millennia ago how, in terms of how we adapted. And we all know this because we know how it feels to be in a, uh, in a stadium, a, an arena, and be shouting for the, your team and, sh- and shouting against the, the, the opposing team. That notion of being with the in-group, it's very powerful emotionally. But, and my point in the book is that this is a, a great thing that humans have, and we need to exercise it in the sports arena, but it's no way to make public policy. And unfortunately, that model, that amygdala-driven emotional uh, model has entirely replaced and crowded out rational argument. Now, in our history, political division has always been characterized by both emotional issues and rational issues. But my argument is that in recent years, it's gone to I mean, the, the, the emotional side has entirely crowded out any form of reason. And, and we've got a, my plea in the book is that Rational Americans, 77% of Americans, according to my research, are part of the frustrated majority, meaning they feel like their voice is being drowned out by the extremes on both sides, and that this frustrated majority needs to take back the conversation and reinstill some form of rational dialogue and reason and facts in our political debate. But can we have rational dialogue? Everything, when I see news reports about people being interviewed at at political rallies, it seems to me uh, there's no real connection between the question and the answer. Absolutely. That's correct. Because we're, 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 we're the, the whole political arena is in, is in this different space now. I mean, one, you know, it's, it's hard to, to talk about this without going to some of what I think are the solutions, which I go into in the third part of the book. Which we will deal with at the end of the show, of course. Uh, yeah. but, well, but part of it is related to this because I don't think, so like, for example, what's on cable TV today that's called news hmm. is not really news and it shouldn't be called news. And there, you know, information, accurate information economically is a public good, meaning that that it, it, it has far more benefits than the private sector itself might invest in creating uh, um, that are, are proven. And so if there's no uh, good sources of accurate information, we have to make sure they're provided. And so there may be a different incentive system in media that, that is, that, that's changed. And, and media incentivizing whoever screams the loudest or whoever says the most outrageous thing may not be the best incentive system for how we, how, we, how we run our media in this country. That's one example. So the book suggests things that can be done to change this. And there are many, and, and one of them, for example, is campaign advertising, which is a whole topic in and of itself. But I make an argument in the book about how it needs to be reformed. 
Since one of your themes is the need to get the two Americas to talk to each other in a reasonable manner, uh, is that uh, why you agreed to be a guest on Tucker Carlson today? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, that's the whole premise of that appearance was that I, my, my approach is to speak to people of all sides of the aisle. And so while I got a lot of heat from both sides for being on that show, I think it was we had a very interesting conversation. And, you know, I got Tucker to uh, concede that the Enlightenment framework and truth is fundamentally how we've been successful as a society and we, we, we must not discard it. Now, that may seem ironic to some of your listeners, given what Tucker says at, at times on his nightly show, which is, mm. from my perspective, it's an entirely an entertainment show trying to but, you know, build yeah. an audience. He's one of the it's main drivers of, of the current divisiveness, uh, it seems. He's been a major advocate of the Great Replacement Theory, which many, including yeah. the Anti-Defamation League, have labeled racist and anti-Semitic. Absolutely. And but, I, but, you didn't change his opinions at all, as far as I can tell. Well, if you watch the hour long show, he, he, there, I, I think I, I, I didn't change his opinions by any means. But I, what, I think what he conceded is that the facts matter and that we have to look at the facts and be open to being to, to being convinced, being persuaded. You know, it, it goes back to what how do we how do we create a constitution of knowledge? There's a great new book by Jonathan Roach called The Constitution of Knowledge. And it describes how we amass knowledge in our society, how that works as, as a, a process. And it, it relates to the ability to always believe that it, nothing is certain. It, it's always, it always can be proven differently. And that's why facts and data really matter. We have to be open to the possibility that our hypotheses are, are not correct. And it was that type of conversation where I think I made ground with Tucker Carlson. I don't think it changed his political views. And you're you're really raising a larger question, which is that I don't think we should stop talking to people we disagree with. It's certainly hard to change political opinions. We've seen that. But if we don't have a dialogue based on reason and try to to, to re-erect, re- rehabilitate, if you will, that political dialogue, I think the consequences will be very dour. One of the things I do now with American Schism is I'm part of a group called Braver Angels, which are people from different political sides. In fact, they call themselves the Reds and the Blues, who are willing to get together to discuss these issues because they believe at the end of the day that Americans have more in common based on our credo and our history than that which divides us. And I think we have to realize that, you know, all the people who voted for the candidate you didn't vote for, they're not the enemy. We have to figure out what their what their motivations are, what their understanding is, and come to what is no longer considered important but is fundamental to our country, which has been compromised. And I, I, in well, the book, sometimes I they things. are the enemy, as uh, many people, uh, both in politics and in the media, have discovered, because their lives are threatened and the lives of their their families are threatened, and people are killed because of political divisiveness. Yes, absolutely, uh, and that, I, I mean, uh, uh, absolutely, which is why we've got to find a better way. It we, just we seems can't. to me that more often than not, uh, when people discuss these things, their uh, their positions harden rather than soften. 
Well, let's take a, a, because we don't discuss them with in a framework to, to really gain understanding. The, one of the best examples, Leonard, again, it's discussed in the book, is immigration. So Im, the immigration debates, it's fascinating. Eight years ago or more even, there was a bipartisan approach on the Hill, the Gang of Eight, that dealt with many of the associated problems with immigration. So it was a comprehensive bill. It wasn't perfect, but it had a lot of detail. And I remember it because it made it made Democrats very unhappy because it had things like quotas. They weren't called quotas, but there were real controls on immigration. And it made the, the conservative Republicans unhappy because it had a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. But But here's the thing. It was a detailed proposal that tackled many of the problems that we have in the immigration arena. But what's happened in the last five years is instead of looking at the details and discussing immigration in order to improve our understanding of the issues, we shout at each other about build walls and open borders. And that continual, when you say hard in the position, continuing to shout slogans and not really understanding the issues De- definitely is is counterproductive in my mind, and that's the direction that we're headed. And we DACA is dead, isn't it? I'm sorry. Isn't DACA dead? No, oh, no. Well. It needs to be revived. In fact, what I'm what I'm, my argument is that the detailed approach that was almost passed eight years ago had a lot of good stuff in it, and as opposed to shouting at each other, I mean. Both extremes characterize the, the, the opponent as if they're some kind of caricature. The, you know, the, 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 the left uh, believes that the, the, the Trump side is for closing borders and arresting people and throwing them out. And the other side says that the left wants open borders where anyone could come in. You know, neither, is, neither are viable. Those are both ridiculous solutions. The right answer is... Given the issue, we've been a country built on immigration, for Christ's sakes, over the course of our history. Once again, history can, can be a solve for our wounds. We can look at why and how, for many periods of our, our, our history, immigration was fundamental for finding workers, finding skills. And then at other times, it was definitely restricted, and sometimes for bad reasons, meaning for reasons that were that were based on 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 um, race or or group or ca- those types of things. Interestingly, Richard that, Nixon, a conservative Republican, opened up the United States to Asians. Absolutely, and and you see examples of this over the course of our history many times. And I again, it's discussed in the book. But but my, my point being is that the debate that we have today is based on slogans in t- designed to, um, uh, to, to provoke and to get people to solidify their sides. I'll give you another example, Leonard. You, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter or critical race theory, these, again, we're using slogans to describe the issue of, you know, what is the true American story and what are the various aspects of it and the diverse American stories that make up our history and how do we teach them to the next generation, which is a very important topic, but it's not going to be, it's, it's not going to be solved by throwing slogans around. It's going to be discussed and, and it's going to advance in terms of its objectives. If we have a, a a serious and an informed debate, can we stop for just a moment and come back and address that? 
Sure. Because I have to tell my audience that this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with my guest, Seth David Radwell. He's written a book called American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. It's published by Greenleaf Group. Uh, you were mentioning that in the book you address the issue of systemic or systematic racism in our country. Do you think that movements like Black Lives Matter will have much of a lasting impact? Well, I think that the entire contradiction of the founding of America was that we have something like the Declaration of Independence, one of the most radical documents ever written, that says all men are created equal, and yet we're, the, the nation was founded on the basis of slavery in many of its parts. So I think, you know, the, the issue of, uh, of for first slavery and then the issue of egalitarian rights and representation is the fundamental contradiction of America. And it's worked through every, it's, it's addressed in every part of our history. So for example, I'll give uh, one snapshot. One of the chapters in the middle section is about reconstruction. And after the reconstruction amendments were adopted, but, but in 1867, in the Southern states, 85% of African-Americans, many former slaves, were voting. And they had elected Congress people and the first senator. Now, that the talk about a pendulum swing, which is what the book illustrates. Fast forward 12 years to after Reconstruction had, had collapsed and the southern states had regained the ability to control their local environment, and they reinstituted these black codes, which were the precursors to, to uh, Jim Crow laws. And at the same time in that period, the Ku Klux Klan grew rampantly, so that by 10, 12 years later, by 1878, or I think 1882, let's say, less than 5% of African Americans were voting. So think about that. In 12 years, the entire enfranchisement for the first time of Southern African-Americans came and went. And, and we're so, seeing that play out today as well with all the new voting rights laws. Exactly. So I'm so glad you said that. So, so this is great, Leonard, because I have discussed this. When people are discussing these voting, 18 states now, or even 19, I think, have enacted new voting laws under the auspices of election security. And my argument is that that's very interesting. And to really understand that, you must do two things. You must, first of all, bring the data, because without the data, it's hard to know what these new laws are addressing. And the second thing is you have to look at history. So let's do that. When you look at the data, and I've read some of these laws, by the way. They do do things that might make elections more secure. But what the data show is that 
there is sometimes fraud in elections, but it's very small. It's usually localized. And it's never been shown to affect the outcome of an election. There's no, or, there's or, never to, been, or to help one party more than another over the course right, of our There's history. never been systemic fraud, okay? Now, at the same time, so that's what the data say. At the same time, we have a history in America of using voting regulations as a, as a tool to disenfranchise voters, especially African-Americans. Jerry so when, when, when you say to me, it, what are these new 19 laws that states are, you know, if, if people are really arguing what they're about, it seems to me, are, are these really mechanisms to make elections more secure or, or are they thinly disguised voter suppression efforts? And I think looking at the data and looking at history make the answer absolutely clear. Well, uh, we were talking about Black Lives Matter. Isn't part of the reaction to it uh, the the strong opposition in many areas to the teaching of critical race theory? Some states have banned the teaching of the history of slavery altogether. Yes. So So, how did the debate over slavery, how does that reflect the two enlightenments? Okay. Well, the, the debate over slavery has to do with the fact that there are people, there are many groups in this country that believe we need to teach the, full, the whole story to, to, in other words, our, our history, the good and the bad. I'm one of those. I believe that that will make us better and stronger as a country if we, if we come to terms with all our sins as well as our glories. Now, now, when we get into labels, critical race theory, which I, I'm not an expert on, it, but I've looked into it, it to great detail, it has many elements in it that I think are, 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 are counterproductive in my mind. So there are certain elements about, so just because I might be opposed to some elements of critical race theory doesn't mean that I don't think we need to teach the truth about slavery and, what, and the, the incredible degree to which African-Americans have not been given uh, the, the same opp- uh, opportunities that other Americans have. So, you know, I think, again, labels are, we need to be careful with labels. I believe that the, the Enlightenment has a lot to do with this. And, you know, one of the reasons why the Jeffersonian argument and Jefferson himself was such a complex character is because his, his, from his pen came some of the most bold writing about egalitarian rights. And yet, of course, he was a slave owner. But does that mean that Jefferson should be cast aside as a founder of our country? My view is not at all. But we're taking his statue out of City Hall here in New York. I know, which which bothers me greatly, by the way, because Jefferson was an amazing uh, uh, it was an amazing founder of our country and did some amazing things. He was very ambivalent about about race. He himself wrote great at length about Plans for manumission, plans for getting rid of slavery. He, um, he thought it would phase very out much intended. In I'm sorry. He thought it would phase out in time. Well, but not only he created plans for getting rid of it. You know, I've, the Jefferson, there's a whole group of Jeffersonians who debate this to, till today. But there's no question in my mind when you look through the, the the data again, the history. When Jefferson said all men are created equal, he was not talking about white men. He was talking about all people. And and there's a lot of evidence in the American Schism the book that point out why that's the case. Um, now, I'm not saying I'm not defending Jefferson's uh, being a slave owner. That doesn't mean that he wasn't also one of our greatest thinkers who really set the foundation 
for America in many ways. So again, you know, I think the point is, is that we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have to understand and take and understand our achievements and our successes and address our failures. And that, in essence, is a lot of what, where the book heads uh, um, in its later chapters is, a, is about coming to terms with the fact that we as Americans have become, America itself has become the envy of the world over the last hundred years, not because of our military power or because of other, other things like, like our strength economically. We've come to be the envy of the world for two things, in my view. One is that we're the greatest example of self-government in the history of the world, despite all of our problems and all of our cronyism that's, that exists. We're still the most transparent and, and um, self-governing model that's ever existed, A. And B, the other reason why we're the envy of the world is because we've created a meritocracy that, is, again, is far from perfect. Hey. But it is a place where many people have come with nothing, with no you know, hereditary ownership or land, and have managed to build incredible lives. So that model of meritocracy, with all its flaws is one of the reasons we've been a great country. But at the and same time, we have the Senate and the Electoral College, which are the results of, uh, of a counter-enlightenment, no? No, they're, they're results of a moderate enlightenment. So the book describes in great detail in the first chapter how we got from the Declaration to the Constitution. And the answer is that it was a, a pushback from a radical phase when we first declared independence to a much more moderate view that put guardrails against democracy. So the, the Constitution had elements of this radical enlightenment I discussed earlier, namely a House of Representatives. But it also had elements of this aristocratic group, like the Senate, which at that time was not even elected. It was The senators were appointed by the state legislators. And the president was a strong executive that also was closer to Montesquieu's moderate enlightenment model. So there were guardrails put against a democracy. Now, that's where the moderate and the radical enlightenment still play out today. I argue in the book that we need two things. We need structural changes and we need a change in mindset. And the structural changes are that, you know, the founders and the framers of the Constitution knew that they were never going to be able to resolve all the potential issues. And they intended on the Constitution to be modified every generation. And we need some modifications, namely, you know, the, the Senate needs adjustment because it makes no sense that the Dakotas, which became two states for somewhat of a trivial reason, and today have four senators amongst the two Dakotas, Whereas California, which has an economy that's 38 times larger and 40 times the number of people have two senators, hmm. that's problematic. Yeah. And it wasn't intended to be used that way. So, so that's what I mean where they, they need, we need structural changes. But, we need, we need a, one of the structural changes I argue we need, which is a whole separate topic, is a term limits. And there are reasons why I make the case that even though uh, – experience is important in, let, let's say, legislators, the benefits of of having no term limits are now outweighed by what ends up becoming a, an effort where more attention is, is devoted by legislators on getting reelected than in some and, public and not policy. Just, and not just getting reelected. There's uh, many people would like to see term limits with the Supreme Court, which uh, 
uh, although we're not going to go into that in any detail, has a rather checkered uh, past in, in terms of all the things that we're discussing. It often took positions that uh, were anti-democratic as an umpire. Yes. It wasn't always didn't always call the balls and strikes the way it should have. Absolutely. And, and, and so, so all I'm saying, though, for, the, for, for that, the, there are structural changes that we need to make. And and I, I lay them out in, in the third part of the book. The mindset changes have to do with the way that we talk to each other. And this notion that, you know, we that uh, the enemy is here, that we become enemies to each other, that 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 has to entirely change. And I call on um, the, the exhausted, the frustrated majority, if you're listening what I, what I reject that whenever I get into a conversation with someone that is devoid of fact and is based on name calling or ad hominem attacks, I stop the conversation. You see, we have to reject that form of discussion. And that was the reason really to your question about why I went on the Tucker Carlson show, because I am a, open to engaging with his audience based on a logical discussion of facts now, uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Seth David Radwell, who's written a book called American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secrets to Healing Our Nation. It is published by Greenleaf. Um, isn't there a global trend toward autocracy? Should we be alarmed that some Republicans have embraced Viktor Orban of Hungary, N- not just Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson, but hasn't right. the, the Conservative Political Action Committee announced plans to hold a conference in Budapest next year? There is absolutely a trend towards autocracy across the globe. Not, you mentioned Hungary in Turkey, China, Russia. And, and what happened here was, in many ways, you know, a, a, an experiment with autocracy. And so this is this is a con, a conscious uh, movement that is very powerful. And I think it, it terrifies me enormously. I mean, one of the, the mission of, of American schism is to make sure that we can pass democracy on to our children. And um, that we're moving, in, in my view, in the opposite direction. Because we're 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 in a space where, for all the wonders and terrific aspects of the internet and d- digital media, it's also the way it's structured today. It's very easy to promulgate misinformation, and Americans, as I mentioned when we started, Leonard, are to some degree are giving up trying to find out the truth. And in that type of world, it's much easier to yield your power to an autocrat who seemingly has the answers. You know, what I discuss in the book is that democracy is a very um, difficult form of government, but it's, it's a wonderful, I mean, for, I, I kind of explain why I believe it is epistemologically superior. And I hate to use that term, but what, uh, democracy is a form of government where you get to learn. You're supposed to listen to our, to our fellow citizens and develop ideas. In an autocracy, edicts are handed down and you obey them or go to jail. Well, where this, does we populism to, come into this conversation? Well, populism is, is, a, is a very interesting uh, um, you know, phenomenon because it, many, it means many things. In many ways, the term populism itself, which really began in, in terms of a populist movement in the Jacksonian era, was the notion of getting more people non-elites involved in government. I mean, 
to Andrew Jackson's credit, by the time of his presidency, more it wasn't just white men with with um, land, all all white men, again, still look quite limited, but all white men could vote. In fact, it was the largest enfranchisement on, on the planet when Jackson was president. So the notion of populism per se, of getting non-elites represented, is a wonderful thing. In our country, we populism has also become to mean the political tool by which uh, a leader, leaders or potentially leaders curry favor by playing into the fears of 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 working class citizens. Top and down populism. Right. And, and I discussed this in the book. I discussed the difference between like like, for example, one again, history is important. The agri- the, the uh, farmers alliance in the 19th century was a bottom up populist movement that was tremendous, tremendously beneficial because in the face of what was tremendous economic hardship amongst farmers, it was a movement that was trying to empower farmers to be able to basically make a living. And it it had some, it led to some real changes in policy that were, was ultimately adopted by the progressive era presidents, both right and left, Wilson and, and, and Teddy Roosevelt. My point being, that was an example when our country had a populist movement that ended up leading to very progressive change. But of course, this top-down populism is very dangerous. And you, you've seen Trump use it in a way that, in my mind, is extremely destructive. You say that you would like to build a ground-up movement, which you call Fight Unreason with Reason. How would that work? We only have a couple of minutes left. So I'm right now, um, I, well, I would encourage your listeners to take a look at the book. I'm spending a, a lot of time discussing the book with two audiences, and you can get involved in this. One are people in this 77% frustrated majority, and those are Americans who, are ta- who feel like their voice is drowned out. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book in the first place, I think, as I mentioned, Leonard, is that over the course of my business career, I had been able to discuss politics with all types of smart people. But I've noticed in the last couple of years that that educated people, politics has become a third rail. Nobody wants to go there for fear of bringing on the wrath of some group or saying the wrong thing. And I think that the way to the way to counteract that is being open to fight, to, to discuss it, to fight on reason with reason. So I'm talking to groups in this Braver Angels organization, which is about getting groups together. And it, it has hundreds of thousands of groups across the country in individual communities. And I do sometimes I do book groups with them or talk to them. I did that recently. But I'm encouraging people who may not want to get involved, put their head in the sand to reconsider because we want to be able to hand this wonderful form of democracy to our children and improve upon it, as opposed to casting it aside in the name of of some other form of government. There are a whole bunch of people who are talking about a revolution and a civil war in this country right now. So um, we're we're going through a dangerous time. Very dangerous. And, and, and 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 by the way, it's, it's, it's been shown that, there are there are ways that we can come out of this without necessarily tremendous bloodbath or violence. And we've we've done that in our history. Again, our history can be beneficial. Sometimes our divisions have led to things like the Civil War and sometimes they've led to the reforms of the progressive era. So, again, we, we can learn about how to get out of the conundrum we're in. 
Seth David Radwell's book is called American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. It's published by Greenleaf Book Group. And I thank you very much for being on our show today. It's been such a pleasure, Lennon. Thanks for having me, and I'd be happy to uh, come back anytime. Okay, well, um, we will see. Um, I, I have a feeling that the things we're discussing aren't going to disappear in the near future. Absolutely. Certainly. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Reggie Johnson, our live engineer, and to Leonard Lopate at Large's executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the, the great work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're available on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past interviews at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I, I, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to continue this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's sponsored 100% by its listeners on the air. We don't take money from foundations. We don't run funding credits uh, that you hear on other public radio stations, really disguise ads. We depend 100% on our listeners, which allows us to remain a lot more independent. We don't have to worry about the topics that we discuss, but it also puts us sometimes in a rather precarious economic situation. So why not make that call right now to ensure that this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come? And one great way to show your support uh, and uh, for what we do on London Lopez Lodge is become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies provide the, the station with a steady, stable source of support, something we need right now more than ever. But however you choose to, to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well through their generosity. Again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI. Dot org. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Lopate at large, and thank you so much. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Monday when Director Rachel Boynton will discuss her latest documentary, Civil War, or Who Do We Think We Are? Have a great weekend.